Good evening. Welcome to our third night of our Lenten mission with Father Karchi. Please stand and join in singing our opening hymn, We Are Called. Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, open our hearts as we gather on this third evening. Allow us to sit confidently and patiently in the face of any challenges or even worries or fears that may have surfaced for us. Allow us to savor the joys and the graces and the blessings that we've received. Allow us to be good companions for one another on this journey to which you've called us. We ask all of this through Christ our Lord. Amen. A reading from the book of Revelation. Then the angel showed me the river of life-giving water, sparkling like crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of its street. On either side of the river grew the tree of life that produces fruit 12 times a year, once each month. The leaves of the tree serve as medicine for the nations. Nothing accursed will be found there anymore. 
the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will look upon his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more, nor will they need light from lamp or sun. For the Lord God shall give them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. The word of the Lord. Somebody asked me over the course of these gatherings if there was a book that I could recommend about the Holy Spirit. And obviously, lots has been written uh, over the last two millennia about the Spirit, but is there something that I could recommend? And really, without skipping a beat, I said, yes, absolutely. One of the greatest books that I know, talking about the Holy Spirit, that I could recommend is simply called, I Believe in the Holy Spirit by Yves Congar, and uh, I have it here. <laughs> and at just under 2,000 pages, it is a bargain, okay? Um, but just in case you have other plans for the next two years of your life, there's, that's really quite good. Another option I'd recommend to you is a short story about five pages long, by Flannery O'Connor. Some of you will be familiar with it, called A Temple of the Holy Ghost. And I don't know how many of you know or like Flannery O'Connor, but she really is an acquired taste. I, I love her. Southern Catholic writer out of that extraordinary kind of Catholic literary renaissance that we had in America in the middle of the 20th century. But the thing about Flannery O'Connor is if you're recommending a story and someone says, oh, wow, well, well tell me, what's it about? You get about two sentences in and then their eyes have glazed over and, and you've lost them because her stories aren't really about the narrative. They're not about the plot. Much more kind of about what's going on in the hearts and minds of the characters. So they really are quite wonderful, insightful, and they're incredibly, incredibly rich in the Catholic worldview, for lack of a better word. But let me do my best to try and get across a little taste of this story called The Temple of the Holy Ghost. And some of it will just sound really odd, but that's how she writes. Give her, a, give her a chance. But it starts out with the scene, there's a little girl and kind of not the most pleasant kid. Uh, she's not very popular, probably not a real cute sort of girl that you just want to get to know, but she's very bright, she's very intelligent. And so her way of coping with the world is just be incredibly sarcastic and cynical. And you know, when she meets someone, she generally decides, I think Flannery O'Connor uses the word morons. You know, she, she thinks most people she meets are morons, so not the most pleasant kid. Well, one day, two of her older second cousins come to visit. And these girls are older, they're teenagers, and they're a little bit more attractive, popular, and the little girl decides they're morons, right? Because they're, they're not nearly uh, quite up to her standards. And, and there's obviously some jealousy there, and there's some resentment. And as you get to know this kid better, you realize that this is somebody who wants to be connected, wants to be involved, but isn't, and hasn't really developed a way to try and cope with that. And her way of dealing with it is her own pride her own sort of inner superiority. Well, these two older girls are a little bit of a handful for their parents, and so they go to school in a convent boarding school. And this is their weekend to come home. They, they get out of the convent, and they're visiting the family where this little girl is. And one of the things that these older teen girls have been taught by the sisters is that they are temples of the Holy Spirit. So if you go back to last Sunday's readings, and they should remember that they're temples of the Holy Ghost, particularly when they're on dates with boys. And they've literally referred to themselves mockingly as Temple One and Temple Two. That's how 
so they refer to themselves. And so the little girl sees this, and it's all deliberately kind of meant to build up a sort of mockery of that idea. Temple of the Holy Spirit, okay, the, the nuns tell the girls, you're, you know, tell the young men that you're a temple of the Holy Spirit, don't, uh, don't allow any trouble there. And if you're reading this and you're Catholic, you know, and you're kind of laughing, and I'm hardly doing it justice. She really is a very wonderful storyteller. But eventually, as the story goes on, there's a carnival. This is set in the rural south. There's a carnival, and the older girls are get, get to go. They go with their dates, and the little girl is left at home. And so, true to her character, she decides she didn't want to go anyways. Probably just a bunch of morons there. And so she stays home, kind of justifying why she wouldn't have enjoyed it. But of course, she's fascinated with the idea, and she really wishes she could go, and she wants to know what was going on. And she stays up late until they come back. So they come back, and they're well aware that this kid would love to know what was going on at the carnival. So they're sort of telling stories about it and exaggerating it a little bit. But then they start telling a story that there's a, quote, freak show, okay? There's a freak in a tent, and uh, Flannery O'Connor, whatever it is, a Siamese twin, something like that. But it's this person who is being paraded as a freak. Pay your money, go in the tent, see this freakish person. And what the person is saying is, don't laugh at me. This made an impression on these older teen girls. Don't laugh at me, because I'm a temple of the Holy Ghost. That's literally what the freak is saying. God made me this way. I didn't choose to be this way, and he could do the same to you. You know, it's in this kind of southern preacher style. I'm a temple of the Holy Ghost. And of course, the girls have remembered this because that's what they jokingly refer to themselves as. And you see the little girl then, and... Here's where, again, I might as well just shut up because this is where Flannery O'Connor's beautiful eloquence kicks in. And all of a sudden, we stop from being in this kind of quirky story about this odd southern family. And it's just this beautiful reflection going through the little girl's mind and heart. How this kind of joking concept of being a temple of the Holy Spirit all of a sudden, in the words of this person who's been paraded as a freak for other people's entertainment, quoting the same concept, and there's something that begins to pierce through to this little girl's own heart. And they go to the convent the next day after the carnival, the weekend is over, and there's this big, fat nun who always welcomes the visitors. And we're told at the beginning of the story, when they go to pick up the two teenage girls, how much this little girl hates this nun. Because she comes and just kind of envelops her. You know, and she has all these horrible thoughts about what she'd like to happen to this nun who just won't leave her alone. And now at the end of the story, they go back. And this idea of, hey, wait a minute. The thing that maybe makes me feel a little bit odd, a little bit misplaced, the thing that makes me feel like an outsider, the thing that makes me feel like I have to somehow recreate the world around me so that I'll fit in when nobody else seems to think that I do. Maybe that's not such a bad thing because I too am a temple of the Holy Ghost. And in the closing scene, they go off, they drop off the two teenage girls and this big nun comes out, right? And she just envelops her and gives her this big hug. And now, for the little girl, that's just fine. And they go into the convent, and adoration is going on. They're singing tantum ergo. Again, if you read a Flannery O'Connor story, you're immediately swept right into your Catholic childhood or presenthood. And if you're not Catholic, you'd have no idea most of the time what she's talking about. <laughs> and here's the little girl, and they're singing tantum ergo. And then they get in the car, they drop the teenage girls off, so it's just the mom and her and the driver, and she sees the sun and it's setting, and Flannery O'Connor says, you know, it's like a blood-red host sinking into the chalice. And it's this beautiful reflection on sacramentality, for lack of a better word. And when I say that if you don't have time to read 2,000 pages of Yves Congar, 
Read A Temple of the Holy Ghost by Flannery O'Connor. In style, the two couldn't be more different. In years of your life, you'll devote to reading it. The two couldn't be any more different. But there's something about that little story, which I said I haven't even begun to do justice to. But there's something in that little story that beautifully captures this sense of what we have inside of us, that if we only knew it, we'd be truly blown away. Remember the hatching, the wind over the water before God has created anything, before the very first let there be. There's the wind over the water and something inside which is waiting to be hatched. We talked about, are we willing to allow God's thing to be hatched? Or are we trying to construct it ourselves? Are we digging a well that we've orchestrated? Or are we willing to let ourselves plunge into the nearest sinkhole? So on night one, I took you into a sinkhole. Yesterday, I asked you to name your poverty. Well, let's go out to the coffee, right? Let's let's call it a day. So what do you do with that, right? What do you do with it? Almost like the little girl in the story. You know, there's no running away. To run away is to sort of live the lie to think that we can get ourselves out of it. We can restate the narrative. We can rewrite the script. How do we do that? Well, we do that with our imagination. We do that with our inner feelings. As we grow up and are forced to be out in the world more, we construct the self that we want others to see. We spend time with whom we choose to spend time with. We reveal things about ourselves that we choose to reveal. We censor things that we choose to censor. We understand why we do that. Careful reading of Genesis 3 will unpack a lot of those behaviors of human nature. But for now, let's just take them for granted because we all do them at times. They're ways of trying to bring some order or sense into what otherwise can seem to be a very frightening situation. When the breath of God is going over the waters, it's going over chaos, right? That's how Genesis describes those waters. So what I said in night one is that the first order of business of the Spirit is manifesting, manifestation, to make real where there really is the need to pay attention and look to notice where something is coming into new life inside of us if we allow it to be shown, if we allow it to be revealed. What's the second action of the Spirit that we talked about yesterday? Transformation. Every time we talk about the Spirit in the sacraments, it's transforming. The little baby who leaves the baptismal font is literally a different person than the one who came in. And if we don't believe that, then that's something to pray for. That's something to ask for understanding about. But it's not the understanding that comes just from reading a theology book. And so what I'd like to lay out to you tonight is the challenge of saying, why is the baby different after they leave the baptismal font? And I mean that as a real exercise. They don't let me teach sacramental theology, but if they did, that would be my one exam question. Why is this baby a different person after they've left the baptismal font. And of course, any good theology student would launch into pages and pages of good theology about how they've been transformed and they've received salvific grace and and all the rest of it. But think of the little kid in the story, right? What's going to convince her that something has happened, something has changed? But just think about what goes into it. What goes into baptizing a child? For those of you who've done it or served as a godparent, think of everything that goes into that choice being made. What a communal action it is. And sometimes a cynic can say, well, they're only doing this because grandma and grandpa wanted it. And sometimes the couples themselves will tell you that. You know, this is a nice custom. We're not even sure we want it, but, you know, my parents would kill us if we didn't do it. It's not a bad thing to do, let's just go ahead. But who's to say that isn't dripping with the power of the Holy Spirit? When that young couple says, well, okay, my parents want it or my grandparents want it, whoever said that isn't infused 
with the unconditional love of God. If I'm doing it because some people I love care enough about it to maybe they hounded me a little bit, and that's just at one end of the spectrum. And most people, they want that, they desire it, they know it's good. Maybe they couldn't write a 2,000-page book on the Holy Spirit and baptism. But think of everything that goes into that decision. Hopefully in their marriage preparation, it was something that was talked about. You may or may not be blessed with children, but if you are, let's talk about baptism and what it means. And think about, again, the decisions. Yes, we're going to do that. Where is it going to happen? Maybe that couple hasn't been connected to any parish at all. And all of a sudden they realize they have to baptize their child. So, hey, you know that one we drive by, honey, every, every week on the corner? Is that one Catholic? Well, whoever said that's not a wonderful reason to look it up and find out if it's Catholic. And if they walk through the doors for that reason, who's to say that isn't infused with the Holy Spirit? You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's inside of us and it's waiting to be hatched. And what would that look like when it happens? Maybe it is just, when are you going to have the child baptized? Or, I'd love if you'd have the child baptized. And maybe we realize that isn't well received, and so we we back off a little bit. Who's to say the Holy Spirit isn't there in the backing off? Because the backing off, in this case, is not walking away from the sinkhole. It's simply saying, I've got to sit with you here patiently. And maybe the child will never get baptized within the lifetime of the one who's waiting. Who's to say the Holy Spirit isn't there, dripping with life-giving power in the patient waiting, in the one who is there as witness? And so if the moment comes that they are there at the font, now we recognize not a carefully chiseled well, but just a thin veneer over this gaping, gaping, infinitely deep hole, waiting to swallow us up in the best sense of the word. And there they are. And the Holy Spirit is there. In all the nervousness of the parents, you know, oh, is she going to behave well? She screamed all night. Is she going to embarrass us in the church? In the wonderful way that all that humanity is represented. And they say the right words and All the ritual is there. Then they go home to the cake. And the Holy Spirit is there. That's what it looks like to say, where is the Holy Spirit in this sacrament? Now, once you have that, then pull out your theology books and you can plug in everything you want to say about salvific grace. Plug in everything you want to say about the role of the ordained minister who's there in the line of the apostolic session and all the rest of it. But it's manifested in that really lived experience. Even before a baby comes along, when I do marriage prep, I don't do it so much these days. I better not be doing it for my students, at least (laughs) not in real time. But when I do marriage prep, one of the things that gets me uninvited to lots of wedding receptions (laughs) is that I force them to think about what is the creative element of their love? You know, and they often think, and lots of times there's preconceptions. I'm always a little surprised how people think the church talks about children. Um, Sometimes it's even like, well, why does the church demand we have 2.5 kids or, or whatever? And the idea of baptizing a child, right? Having a child. And I try to couch that in terms of creativity. And in a crowd this size, I know many of us are aware that it's not a given that a couple will conceive a child just because they so badly want one. And I'll invite them to think about, even before you're blessed with a child, where is the creativity of your love? Because if love is real, and it really is coming from God and infused in God, then it has to be creative. The love of God cannot be uncreative. And so when I say I get uninvited from their wedding receptions, what I force them to do is to ask their friends and family members, how has this person changed? What have you noticed about them that's different from before they met their future fiancé? 
And usually those are happy questions, but sometimes not so much. What's changed about them? What is creative? How are they bigger than the sum of their parts? And usually those questions are easily answered by someone who's known them for all or most of their lives. And if you are married, maybe ask yourself that. What, what, what's new that came out of me as a product of this relationship? Because if you can begin to get your head around that, and this doesn't just have to be marriage, think about your, your best friendship. Think about any group of people that you are investing yourself in. When you get beyond the casual, you know, who are you kind of phase, and you really start going deeper and revealing who you are and allowing them to do the same thing to you, something new comes up that wasn't there before. And that's what the creative power of the Holy Spirit looks like. And I get it, an atheist, a skeptic could say, that's ridiculous, you don't need God for that, that just happens when two people get together. Well, so what? If the Spirit exists, if God exists, and I'll assume we're over that hump or you wouldn't be here on a potentially snowy winter night, then if God exists, we should celebrate what that presence looks like and what it very concretely looks like when we're talking about the Spirit is creativity itself, creation itself. That's why I chose the reading that I chose for tonight. Beautiful reading from chapter 22 of Revelation. It's the river of life that's flowing. And if you just humor me, open that up for a second. It's on page 12. If you know the book of Revelation, they've had some tough times by the time you get to chapter 22. Beasts and plagues and all kinds of things. But ultimately, the book of Revelation is written as a book of encouragement. It's written to real people, right? It's not written so that apocalypticists in the year, you know, 1999 could make money out of writing books. It's a book of encouragement. It's written to churches that are struggling. Think about the church today. What if someone was writing to us as encouragement? I know there are tough times. I know there are struggles. I know there are questions that you wonder, where is God in the midst of this? Imagine someone writing a book of encouragement for us. That's what the book of Revelation ultimately is. There's lots of crazy symbolism. I get that. What a great commercial to do some of your St. Joe's Bible studies because you've got some great teachers here and leaders. But as you work through the struggles and the travails, it opens up into this glorious vision. And it's this vision of the river of life. The angel showed me the river of life-giving water, sparkling like crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of its street. On either side of the river grew the tree of life that produces fruit 12 times a year, once each month, the leaves of the trees serve as medicine for the nations. Nothing accursed will be found there anymore. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will look upon his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more, nor will they need light from lamp or sun, as was beautifully read a few minutes ago. But the thing I want you to key in on is in the very first sentence, flowing from the throne of God, and of the Lamb. What flows from the combining of God and the Lamb, Father and Son, is the Spirit's love. And that's a real key point in the history of our faith, that the Spirit flows from the unity of the Father and the Son. And let's not just think of that as sort of a theological description of the Trinity. Go back to the Gospel of John, if you're familiar with that where Jesus says to his now really worried disciples, I'm leaving. I'm going to be leaving. I won't be staying with you. That's before the crucifixion. I'm not going to be staying with you. And this is Jesus. This is their friend. This is the one that they love. I won't be staying with you. I have to go. Because if I don't go, you'll never receive my spirit. The spirit is the one who comes to us 
only once the Son has returned to the Father. And that can just sound like, well, okay, but what does that have to do with me? It has everything to do with us because it says how we know the love of God, how we know that there's something inside of us that wants to hatch, how we know that if we name our poverty, we're not going to be squashed and that that vulnerability won't be manipulated and taken advantage of, how we know that any of this is really good for us is because it's the gift that the Father and Son give us. Why does it have to work that way? I don't know. But that is the way that it works. And just maybe if you think about the creative fruit of your most cherished relationship, the most beautiful thing that ever came out of your marriage, the most beautiful thing that ever came out of your friendship, the most amazing thing that ever came out of your small community, then you begin to get a little taste of the most beautiful thing that could ever come out of any relationship ever. And that's what the Holy Spirit is. That's who the Holy Spirit is, but that's what the Holy Spirit is. And unless and until the Son, after becoming human like us, is a wonderful act of love, but then leaves the scene, unless and until that happens and they're united once again, that extraordinary outpouring of love doesn't happen. And so as you know in the book of John, the Holy Spirit, he's referred to as what? What does Jesus call him? We have some Bible ringers here. Go ahead and show off. The paraclete, right? You know that word, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. If you break it down, parakaline in Greek, it just means to call alongside, to call with me. Like you call to a friend, hey, come here. You don't say that to your enemy unless you're going to push him down one of those sinkholes. Hey, come here, come here. It's okay, I want you to be with me. That's what paraclete literally means. Yes, it's another name for the Holy Spirit. I, I get all of that. But break it down. It's the one you call to in intimacy. Come here. Come be beside me. I'm calling for you to be with me. That's why we say, come Holy Ghost. That's where that comes from. Veni Sancti Spiritus. Come Holy Spirit because I'm going to call you to be with me. That's what I want. As Elisha says to Elijah, I want what you have. I want your spirit to come and be with me. And oh, by the way, I want twice as much as you have. Come to be with me. What allows us to face the scariness of the sinkhole? What allows us even to name what the poverty of that hole is? Because we're ultimately saying, God, I don't just want you to generically be there. I want you to be here with me in the very same way that you and your son know each other in love. And all of a sudden, you begin to take the theology lesson into the actual lived experience. But this is the difference between simply living in a human way and saying, okay, I'll try to be a good friend or I'll, I'll try to foster good relationships and actually inviting God to be a part of it. That's what we're doing tonight, right? If you just wanted to be entertained, there's a lot easier ways to do it. What does it mean to say, I intentionally want God to be a part of the love that I experience, of the creativity that I experience? If I have the courage to name my poverty, God, I want you to be a part of it. And you look around you, and this is what it looks like. Because it doesn't just happen alone. That's why we have a trinity. It isn't just God the Father by himself. It isn't just the incarnate Son. You've got to have all three or you have none. And so it's that sense of what do we do for each other to help make this be a more palatable process. Why in the world would anyone want to name their poverty? And that's what we do for each other. The most enriching experience I've ever had in my years of priesthood. If you were to ask me that question, you didn't, so I'll put it in your lips. What's been the most enriching experience of your priesthood? Not the greatest, not the most, you know, I, I'm not trying to play that game. 
But as I sit back in my own humanity, it goes back also to experience that I had when I was in Washington, D.C. That was really a wonderful experience for me. I call it my grandparent phase. Because like grandparents, I got to go and do all the fun stuff and I had no responsibilities. So now real grandparents know that's a lie, but... So I was there, I wasn't an associate, I wasn't the pastor, I was just doing studies, but I was living in a parish and doing a lot of things an associate might do, but not the responsibility type thing. And so it was just a wonderful freedom there to sit with scripture and to really celebrate the sacraments and be with the community. And one time celebrating the sacrament of reconciliation, you know, a young adult came in and it was very clear there was just frustration. There was frustration with the church just because she wasn't finding a parish where she felt like she was welcome. She wasn't finding a parish that would have vitality. You know, that's a word we use a lot in the church these days. She just didn't feel like there was life there. And yet she was there because she couldn't walk away. There was something there that she couldn't deny. But God expects more from us than just simply saying, I can't deny you, right? God wants us to be fully alive. God wants us to have a sense of joy. That doesn't always mean affective giddiness. And as I was listening to her, I mean, yes, it was the sacrament of reconciliation, but it became very clear that at the core of her struggle was this sense of isolation. And all of a sudden, for me, it's like a little light bulb went off. And all of the study, because when you study the theology of the Holy Spirit, that's always what you talk about. You talk about the communal nature. You talk about the shared love. You talk about the union of the Father and Son, and that's where the Holy Spirit, well, that all sounds nice. But all of a sudden, this kid is in front of me. And she wasn't that young. She's out of college. And I just, the light bulb went off. and said, this is somebody who knows there's something hatching inside of her. But how do you get to that next step? It's like you go to those exhibits at the zoo of the hatching nursery and you see the little chick that can't quite get its egg cracked. How do you help it out? And what her passion was, and I knew this because I asked her, okay? There is an intentionality that goes into this process. And I just asked her, well, you're in the church. What do you love? And in a heartbeat, she could tell me, music. She loved music. At her Newman Center in college, she was the musician. That's what she did. We were at a parish. You could have named it Our Lady of Perpetual Immobility. I mean, there just wasn't a lot that was going on. And the music ministry kind of reflected that. And she had offered her services, you know, she would play piano, she would, no, 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 we've, we've got that one covered. And they had it covered, but <laughs> wasn't the kind of cover they thought. And what I was able to do, simply by having the freedom of not being, you know, a priest of the Archdiocese of Washington, D.C., you can kind of be a little bit of a troublemaker. And I just, you know, I talked to the, the person doing the music ministry and I said, hey, I was a really talented person and, you know, why don't you, can you just kind of give her a shot? And, and so it was a process, you know, I, I, I mean it was, I think of the chick just trying to crack through the egg. But over time, just because she had a very winning personality and she kind of won over the little bit curmudgeon-y uh, liturgy person, and within a year that had started to grow and People would come to Mass and she'd be playing and they'd come up and talk to her and it grew a little bit bigger and it grew a little bit bigger. And I used to love and go to their rehearsals. I have no musical talent at all, so I would just hide in the back. But as you watched it for me as this relatively new priest, it's as if I was looking at the 2,000 pages of Yves Congar and I was seeing it coming to life. Because they weren't just there going through their scales and honing their craft you could see there was a real community that was building there. And I wasn't too proud to eavesdrop, so I would do it. And you listen, and you begin to hear, all of a sudden they're coming in, and they're talking about what's going on at work, and this little nascent choir director, she just had that kind of personality, so people would come to her, and they'd talk about what was going on and what their struggles were, and it grew, and it grew, and people who couldn't carry a tune so well it got big enough that they could join, right? And it was okay. 
And they'd start going out after every Mass. You know, they'd go out uh, for dinner, they'd get a drink or something. And, and if you know D.C., it's a place full of lost souls. Just because it's a very transient community and people are always coming in and, gosh, do I know anybody here? And this parish started getting kind of a reputation as this community was growing. Well, she was a native, actually grew up in, in Maryland, um, one of those few D.C. natives you might meet in the district. And you can look it up today, and I'm not afraid to, to call her out and name it, St. Thomas Apostle in Woodley Park. There's this thriving little community, and that choir, and they play on Sunday nights, that choir has grown and grown. They do concerts every year. They do a concert in Advent, a concert in Lent, and she always sends me the link. It gets YouTubed. But as I think about that community, to have watched it from this frustrated kid right out of college in the confessional, seeing and having this sense of there's something here that's just waiting to be hatched. And having, I'd never gone through that before. I'd never had that experience. I don't consider myself a choir catalyst. But to be there, because what was happening was something coming up inside of me, obviously. Something was coming to life inside of me. I had the grace of my baptism. I had the grace of ordination. I had the love of wonderful people in my life. I had the beauty of Scripture in me. And all of a sudden, all of that was coming together. Because I was able to sit with this person as their sinkhole was opening up. And they were saying, because this was the confessional seal. I'm only telling you this because I've had permission to talk about it, I promise you. I'm not, and I'm not going to tell you any of her sins. That's not. <laughs> but if you think about it, that's what something like the sacrament of reconciliation is meant to be. It's not meant to go in this box, say your sins, now go out. It's meant to be a communal experience. And communal in the sense of, you know, I'm not talking about... Um, and you're there, you know, with the priest, you're there with God, but it matters that it's a communal experience between two human beings. And it, yes, it totally counts if you go into the dark room and the screen is there. I'm not suggesting that it doesn't count. But is that how we go to our dentist? Right? Is there like a little hole in the wall and you just put your mouth up there because you don't want to see him? And you go to the least the dentist you know the least and you hope he won't recognize you, you know, because that's where you'll get the... Think of how much work goes into choosing your dentist. It is such a communal experience. You talk to friends, give me recommendations. Maybe you interview the dentist to see what their style is. Do we approach our faith in that way? And sometimes we do. But there in the confessional, every sacrament is about a hatching in the spirit. Every sacrament. Eucharist, baptism, marriage, every sacrament, confirmation. And so there we are, and I can get the sense of this opening sinkhole because all of a sudden she's naming the frustration. She doesn't want to become a nun, N-O-N-E, or an N-U-N in her case. But I've had other conversations like that that did lead to religious life. But she doesn't want to just walk away. And what was I able to do for her, not in my personal greatness, but in an openness to the Holy Spirit, to say, it's okay. Let the sinkhole open, but now allow yourself to jump in and see how you're caught. Then human effort has to come in. Yeah, I had to go make a nuisance of myself a little bit with the music person. And I had to talk with the pastor and... You know, but that's relatively little stuff. That's not hard work. And what you're doing is receptivity. Remember what we said past two nights? All we can do is render ourselves and the people around us more or less receptive. The person you scowled at yesterday that maybe led to them scowling, congratulations, you made them a little less receptive to the Holy Spirit. The person you smiled at, Maybe they didn't smile back, but wow. That's not just have a nice day. If it's met with authenticity, 
rendering another heart a little more receptive to the Holy Spirit. But I mean it when I say that for me is one of the most life-giving experiences of my priesthood. To have watched that grow from kind of a grumble with a little opening sinkhole to a growing sense of courage and a willingness to be inspired and to see how that draws other people in. That's what it looks like. But you have to start by naming your poverty. It had to start in that example with that young woman saying, I am so frustrated with the church, Father. I am so frustrated. I try, I try, and I try again. And it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Lots of angry conversations are being had recent years in the church. I get that. But sometimes those can be some of the richest conversations. Someone is willing to stay there and remain. I said this to some of you before. What if we made that our mission? What if it wasn't just, oh yeah, boy, I really was fortunate that you know, she picked my confessional that day and kind of a roll of the dice. And it's providence. God's behind that at some level. But what if we made that our intentional mission? You know, I want to encourage people to name what's hatching inside of them. Because it's not just about complaining about things that are wrong. Sometimes that sinkhole can be the little crack of a joyful thing and we're, we're kind of afraid. We're a little bit gun-shy, you know? Could this actually be real? Could this be an actual possibility? So what if we had a baptism ministry? Not good folks who help baptism preparation. That's an amazing thing. But what if we had a baptism ministry? Well, put that on the side for a minute. Let's go to bereavement ministry. St. Joe's has one. I'm very, very impressed by what it looks like here. And think of how important that is. Somebody has died. Now a person is grieving a loss. A family is grieving a loss. All kinds of decisions that have to be made. And there are people in the parish who say, I'll be with you. I'll sit with you in the midst of this. I'll help you plan that Mass. I'll help you put it together. And then, every bit as importantly, I'll be there, perhaps, at the funeral. I'll be there at the wake. And even more importantly, I'll be there when all is put away. You know this. Sometimes the loneliest people in the world are those who are living the week after a funeral. And there they are. A bereavement ministry. What would a baptism ministry look like? So not the baptism prep folks, but just a group of people who want to get to know the expectant parents or the parents with the newborn child. Oh, hey, you, you've got this baby. That's great. You know, why don't you come over for dinner? We haven't even met you. We're the baptism ministry. It's okay. We have credentials. <laughs> And they just kind of get to know this young couple. Not in a creepy way, but just get to know them, you know? Um, and then the baptism day comes, and, and they're here, right? They're, they're here in the church with them. It's not just let's wait till the church empties out. Okay, now go in and have your baptism family. But, and they're there as an encouragement, you know? And you've got these young parents who maybe haven't been through this too many times, like never. And is there advice or encouragement or support that those who have been through it before, but they're not just doing it to kind of be nice, and oh, I see you at church, and, but to really do it with an intentionality of this is what it looks like to be a community in the Spirit. This is what it looks like as parish to be able to say, I'm here for a reason, with a deep intentionality. I'm here because this is what a vivified, community looks like. I'm praying for you. I'm praying with you. Yes, I have some practical advice I might share with you, but this is where the rubber hits the road in our faith, and I want to be with you in this way. Not the godparents, that's a different role, but there you are. What would it look like in a parish? Then as that child grows up, as the parents grow up, and maybe they stay in the parish, and all of a sudden those are the people you know the basketball games and the graduations and all the rest of it. Music ministry, 
Maybe baptism ministry, maybe not. You can do it on your own if you want. I would check with Father Trout first. (laughs) But what does that look like just in the everydayness of life? So you have in your packets, and you've had them all along, but now I want you to pull them out, the little cards from Community for the Kingdom. And they're listed there, they're not numbered, but seven steps, okay? Well, this is for communities of the kingdom if you gather in these small groups, and some of you already are. If you aren't, maybe really discern that. But maybe for others of you, the community is in the music ministry, or it's in the Bible study that you belong to, or it's in the growing baptism ministry, or it's in the bereavement community, or it's with your neighbors who, you know, for whatever reason, there's maybe been a nudge to just, maybe we talk about our faith. Not in the sense of, you know, what's the latest religious blog you read, but what are you struggling with, you know? Can I name your sinkhole? Maybe that's a new catchphrase to come out of this mission. Let me name your sinkhole. You look like there's something there that we need to talk about. So the one, welcome, sitting down with Christ. We welcome Christ who is in our midst. But what I want to draw your attention to is the last one. We realize that he is the one who has invited us. All of these steps are very Christ-focused, and that's good. I'm a big fan. Um, Absolutely, how Jesus is involved. But I also want us to recognize that as that works through our humanity, as it works through our emotions, as it works through our intellects, that's the work of the Spirit. And so... Christ is the one who's invited us, but that's really what I was talking about, where the Spirit is inviting you, if you're willing to stay, to respect, right? To look again. And if you've had that nudge, yeah, I want to join the choir, not just because I want to show off my voice. I see something they have, and I want it. Elijah, I want twice of what you have. Hey, I know my neighbors in that community for the kingdom, you know? Seems like something is happening there. I know everyone who's in that group. I didn't expect great things, but something creative is growing. Where did they ever get that? The creativity of the Spirit. Who's inviting you? That's what it looks like. To sit with God's Word, and that's a big part of these communities for the kingdom. How about sitting with God's notes in sacred music? Sitting with God's holy presence in shared community and conversation. But inside of you, that's the point. We're not doing it ourselves. Something is coming to life inside of us. And you look at some of these things, reading, abiding. We let God's words speak to us. Christ speaks within us. Remember what St. Paul says the Spirit does? The Spirit is within us, and what's he doing? With inexpressible groaning. Remember that line? With inexpressible groaning, the Spirit is aching inside of us. Then action. Where does it lead us? Where does it lead us? Name your poverty, but name it in trust. Let somebody around you hear it. How do I know they're going to hear it? Well, maybe because I went up to them and said, will you listen to me? Or maybe we have our ears tuned. Hey, I think there's something you need to express. Honey, we need to talk. That shouldn't be a fearful invitation. We need to talk. There's something I need you to know, or there's something I think you need to say to me. And then the action follows. Last thing I want to do is share with you how our church has very beautifully expressed this. And it's one of the most powerful lines that maybe most of you have never read. Or maybe you have, but pretend that you didn't. This is from the Second Vatican Council, the great document on the church, Lumen Gentium. The light of nations, right? And it's really all about the Spirit. Even when the Spirit isn't in the text explicitly, it's all about how are we enlivened as a church. And in Lumen Gentium, Paragraph number 34, they talk about you, well, most of you, 99.9% of you, the laity. 
and they tell you what your responsibility is. Not, wouldn't it be nice if you did this, or gee, maybe on a good day you could try this. This is your responsibility. It's not mine. The laity, dedicated to Christ and anointed by the Holy Spirit, are marvelously called and wonderfully prepared so that ever more abundant fruits of the Spirit may be produced in them. You have been marvelously called and wonderfully prepared. What does that look like for you? And don't tell me you don't think there's something about you that's marvelous and wonderful. You've been marvelously called and wonderfully prepared. Why? So that ever more abundant fruits of the Spirit may be produced in you. For all of their works, prayers, apostolic endeavors, just out there in the world, their ordinary married, family, and single life, their daily occupations, their physical and mental relaxation, if carried out in the Spirit. In other words, everything that you do when you wake up, when you go to work, what makes you laugh, what makes you cry, how you love, how you hate, that's getting in the way. But if you do this in the Spirit, even the hardships of life, if patiently born, all these become spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Together with the offering of the Lord's body, they are most fittingly offered in the celebration of the Eucharist. Thus, as those everywhere who adore in holy activity, get ready, the laity consecrate the world itself to God. What is your job to consecrate the world to God? At the altar, the priest consecrates the host. You receive. You go out in the world and you consecrate the world. When you hear that, do you believe it? Or does it just sound like, well, okay, you know, I guess, we, I just try to do the best I can, just want to get the ball over the net. You consecrate the world to God. But the punchline in that is if you do it in the spirit, if you do it with an intentionality, if you do it saying, okay, I see the sinkhole there, but I also believe the spirit is here. How do you know the spirit is here? Call him. Call on him. And that doesn't just mean say a prayer, but in community, reach out to someone. Extend yourself to someone. When I was standing like a pillar at the young girl's funeral and I was a seminarian, somebody cared enough to come up to me and say, hey, I'm calling you to be by my side. He was my paraclete, that wise priest. You all have your own version of what that looks like but your responsibility is to consecrate the world to God. We all know it's just a matter of hours before we have a justifiable reason for the cross to be covered and the big cross to be there. I just set down a little challenge. Before you get your ashes tomorrow, make a resolution. Who will you consecrate this Lent? Who's your target? Put your little bullseye on them. It doesn't mean you're going to make them a project. It doesn't mean, you know, you're going to get them to read 2,000 pages of Eve Congar. But you want to make them holy. You want to call them apart. You want to call them by your side. And that will mean at some point using the language of our faith. And how will you do it? You'll recognize the right time. You'll recognize the right moment. Maybe you'll invite them into your own little community. But you have that responsibility. None of us can wiggle out of it. And if there's any way to honor your coming out here three nights in a row, it would be that. Every one of you as you go out into the evening, whether the snow has started or not, is called to consecrate the world to God. And to just let that sort of germinate in our hearts for a little music and then we'll...
And everyone, after our closing song, certainly invited to go out for refreshments in the narthex. You can stay. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go and denounce the gospel of the Lord. And I just do please want to acknowledge uh, Dave Retzek and his team, uh, wonderful music ministers we've had each night, the Proclaimers, uh, all of which the Spirit of St. Joe's does so beautifully. So you'll see them out there or up here. Please join me in thanking them. And on that note, can we please uh, express our gratitude to Father Karchi for a wonderful retreat. Thank you very much. <laughs>